Good morning. It's a great pleasure for me to be in Portland. This is my very first visit to this beautiful city. And in particular, I'm delighted to be here at Trinity Cathedral. I hope you know that Trinity is known throughout the Episcopal Church as a community dedicated to excellence in all parts of your life and ministry, your mission, your liturgy, your music. And I am grateful to your dean for the invitation to preach today. I once heard that you you can learn a lot about a particular denomination or a church and about their clergy by visiting the room in which their ministers prepare to lead worship. So, for example, if you were to go into the study of a Baptist minister, whatever else you'd find within that study, there would certainly be a a book, a a Bible, a book of Holy Scriptures, well-read, prominently displayed, and ready to be consulted at the very last minute in case there was any particular questions as she or he prepared for the service. This, of course, in keeping with the Reformed tradition and understanding of the centrality of the Word of God. If you were to go to a Roman Catholic church, the priest prepares for Mass in a room where a crucifix is prominently displayed, which reminds the priest and the servers that the Mass for which they are preparing is integrally linked to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in the Episcopal Church? Well, as the story goes, no matter what else you will find in the clergy sacristy, you will always find a full-length mirror. (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, Episcopal clergy are probably no more vain than other ministers. But beyond uh, that, I think that a mirror may well be a good symbol for a deep truth about the Episcopal Church, our understanding of God, of humanity, and perhaps something about our understanding of the season of Lent as well. You don't have to be Harry Potter's Professor Gilderoy Lockhart or Snow White's evil queen to appreciate the value of a mirror. Mirrors help us to see attributes as well as blemishes, beauty as well as the less than beautiful. In British mystery novels, of which I'm a great fan, a mirror is sometimes employed to see whether a body lying before you is a corpse. If you hold a mirror to the person's mouth, if if it becomes fogged, by the shallow breath, then that's a welcome sign that Miss Marple is not yet needed. (laughs) Some people dislike mirrors. Vampires aren't the only ones who avoid them, while others are only comfortable in looking at sort of the the curved funhouse mirrors that magically shed pounds from the person. But for purposes of our analogy, let's consider the mirrors that you find in a good tailor shop or a dressmaker's changing room, the kind of imaging that produces a genuine selfie, 
our true selves. In other words, the way that God sees us are what is called in theological terms the imago dei, imago dei. That is perhaps my favorite theological description of humanity, that we are imago dei, that is, the image of God or formed in God's image. It's a rather attractive thought, the idea that we, God's creatures, reflect God in some recognizable and indelible way. And perhaps that's some of what lies behind the reading this morning from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. It's a marvelous uh, uh, writings, or a collection really, of, of writings. And I encourage you, if you haven't read it, to read the entire uh, book of Jeremiah sometime, starting with the book Superscription, which uh, indicates that Jeremiah the prophet was writing in the late 7th or early 6th century B.C., which was certainly one of the most turbulent, turbulent times in the history of ancient Israel. I mean, during that time, the country's religion was, a, was in a time of huge upheaval, great reformation going on. And politically, its more powerful neighbors were at war. They were particularly at war with Babylon, who was on the ascendancy, while Egypt and Assyria were in decline. Judah's precarious situation in the midst of this tottered back and forth. Sometimes they were okay, sometimes they weren't. But eventually, Babylon occupied Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and led captive the king and most of the leaders into exile, marking the beginning of what, of what is famously known and a phrase that has entered the English language for a variety of purposes as the Babylonian captivity. It was an era when the pillars of the past were exposed as dust, when lies masqueraded as truth, when leaders betrayed their people, and where foreign interventions were ignored until it was too late. Does that sound familiar to any of you? <laughs> well, against such a background and admit, amidst such turbulence, Jeremiah lamented his culture and prophesied a new day, a new day for all of the people. Listen to his words again. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah's new covenant seems very much like a restoration of humanity's early Garden of Eden goodness, but without having to repudiate the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, to Christian ears, it sounds like because it has been interpret, interpreted as the new covenant that has been brought about through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Christ. Jeremiah's description of this new covenant is a vision of a perfected humanity where the imago Dei, God's image, is no longer obscured or defiled in any way. 
In fact, a mirror set before a person of Jeremiah's new covenant would be more than a reflection of God. In fact, it would be a sign into the divine, the beatific vision itself. Well, to state the obvious, we aren't there yet. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and as part of what our presiding bishop calls the Jesus movement, we believe that we have seen and experienced in the person of Jesus Christ, and particularly in the incarnation itself, a fulfillment of Jeremiah's new covenant. And in that sense, Jesus, Jesus is the mirror held before us as his disciples. Well, I find that a pretty challenging thought because I know the mirrored image that people see of me is but a very faint version of the image cast by the one who, in the words of today's gospel, will draw all people to himself. And that's why we have Lent. Now, of course, we know that we have the possibility of doing something about whatever we see at any time of the year, but this season of Lent is the particular time when the church calls us individually and collectively to look at the mirror and to do something about what we see. See the beauty and go out and find the beauty in others. See the broken bits and go out to find healing and rest and repair. See the aspirations and go out and make those aspirations reality. See the shortcomings and go out and make reparations and find reconciliation. See the glory and go out and shine that glory into the darkest corners of the earth. And there's something else. The mirrored image people see of me may be but a faint version of that image cast upon the world by the one whose disciple I am. But when my faint image is combined with yours and yours and yours and with the millions of others who bear that image, when we unite with our brothers and sisters of all sorts and conditions, we find that the, the, the one whom we reflect is clearer, and the effect upon us and upon the world is magnified. In other words, and, and this is a part of, of the Episcopal Church's mirror that I love, as important as our personal, individual, spiritual work may be, it should never and can really never be separated from the collective work that we have as a people, as a community, as a church, and indeed as a nation or as humankind itself. In recent weeks, we've seen some of the collective Episcopal Church mirror-gazing in action as our church has responded to the need for action as we consider the implications of the Me Too movement, for instance, and in the subsequent actions of our leaders in, in creating ways for change, and most recently for our House of Bishops, who on retreat uh, issued a statement calling us all into a deeper understanding of what this means. We see it elsewhere, 
And the church's slow, yes, but sure repentance for its complicity with racism, with sexism, with environmental degradation, and with the persecution of gay or lesbian, transgender, and other persons who have been perceived as different. We've also seen it in turning toward authenticity, in living the commitment of the Episcopal Church to be and to behave as a community where there are no strangers, no unwelcomed people, no unloved persons, and whose only required documentation is that which is held by all people through the Imago Dei. And so the mirror is held. As one person, I see much for which to be grateful and certainly much to be redeemed. As a people, we see the same, but we also see gifts and aspirations and encouragement and accountability that we can only see as a community. As Lent gives way to Holy Week and Easter, may Jeremiah's new covenant and its vision of a perfected humanity, and where God's image, the Imago Dei, is no longer obscured or defiled in any way, may that be both a challenge and a goal, as together we move beyond the mirror and toward the divine beatific vision, the very presence of God in ourselves, in our church, in our world. Amen.